Hello, and welcome to Broads, Books, and Booze. This is your host, Jamie Bennett, and I am here with the amazing and wonderful Monica. Hello, hello. So, this episode is going to be slightly different today because we have no booze. We're we're a couple of hot mess moms tonight. (laughs) It's true. Sometimes it's just do not add alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, so for our beverage choice this evening, I have some Tiavana chai tea, uh, spiced chai tea, which is probably my favorite tea of all time. And then I had my son add three dashes of orange bitters to mine, and Monica's decided to go without. And it's delicious. It is delicious. So we will still be sipping, but we will be sober tonight. (laughs) 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 Our book tonight is Everything is Fucked, a book about hope by Mark Manson. Monica, did you want to give like a brief overview of what you thought of the book before we delve into it? Yeah, I think when skimming the book over, I realized that this is a very insightful little book. And I feel like it's very applicable to like my daily life. What I also realized is that I need to start taking notes on these helpful little books that I read so that I remember what they are about and can actually apply them to my daily life. (laughs) Nice. Very very true. So uh, I liked a lot of what Mark Manson had to say in, in the book. I am not a big fan of his writing. Like, I feel like he has to have the sort of surprise, oh, that guy used swear words and crazy slang language to sort of cover that he's not that great of a writer. But on the other hand, I also liked a lot of the book. I liked a lot of the ideas. I love philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy in the book. So I was like, oh, yes, I've read about this before. (laughs) I thought um, it was interesting to note that in an interview, he gets a lot of flack for using the swear words. And in an interview... I had read that he purposefully does it because of not the shock value like, ooh, he cusses, but the shock value to your brain to make you notice so that you really see what he's trying to say kind of thing. I I don't know if I said that right, but he does it on purpose. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I can see that. I still... Yeah. Uh, like, there's like 40 pages of footnotes to the book I mean the book goes to like 288 and footnotes start on 235 I mean it's a lot of footnotes and reading some of the footnotes I'm kind of like eh, I'm not gonna take your perception on this I just either you're not coming across the right way or you're just kind of sucking in this section but some of it is really good yeah, some of, some of it I love. I mean, some of it's like, oh, uh, I need to keep this forever. And some of it I'm just like, oh, ugh. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely agree with that. So there are nine chapters to the book. It's a pretty short read. Uh, it sort of feels like it's like a summary of 2,000 years of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> a very brief summary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he has a few favorite people that he likes to talk about a lot on the philosophical circuit. He's a really big fan of Kant and Nietzsche. And he's uh, a little bit into um, Descartes. 
too. So, I mean, let's just delve in. Chapter one. Chapter one is the uncomfortable truth. And what I really liked about what he said is that people feel more hopeless than ever now, even though technically our lives are better than they've ever been. And that the opposite of happiness isn't sadness, it's hopelessness. So he really makes you think about why is it that we are materially better as a society? Why are we feeling so hopeless? Right. Socially, uh, Mm -hmm. we are hopeless, but uh, all other aspects of our lives are comparatively to like the last 10,000 years are so much better. We have stability, we have jobs, we have housing, and yet we're we're at like the highest rates of anxiety and depression. So, you know, what what's going on? So that's sort of what the book is trying to answer that question to. And he talks about the uncomfortable truth a lot. And the uncomfortable truth is that one day we will be dead. And everybody we know will be dead and our lives will be pointless. <laughs> and really, I think that that's what everybody is searching for is some kind of meaning to their life. And without meaning, I think you do feel sort of hopeless. I. And he talks about, like, control. People... People need to feel like they have control of their own life. It's important for people to have values and something to work towards. And it's important for people to have community, like a group of like-minded people that share your values. And he does say that all three of these things are needed. And when what I notice is I feel like more than anything, as our society progresses, we are more and more lacking in community. <coughs> Pardon me. I I agree a hundred percent. So it made me think of Brene Brown when when I was reading that part. It's like you have to have your tribe and you have to have that sense of belonging. Uh, our he talks a lot about algorithms towards the end of the book, and so for human beings for thousands of years, these algorithms that we have, these shortcuts, were really beneficial to us because lots of things were trying to kill us. But in our society today, these algorithms don't really work for how we're living because our lives today are so far much different from what they were, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago was completely different. So it's sort of like our brains aren't evolving as fast as we're able to change the environment around us. Yeah. Yeah. We're making a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Which in chapter two, he uh, he talks about um, he talks about this guy named Elliot. Now I have read about uh, the Antonio Damasco study of this guy before, and uh, Mark Manson just decided to call this patient Elliot. He just gave him a name because the patient didn't have a name in the book, so he just sort of gives him a pseudonym, which is like one of my criticisms about the book is that. To make things more interesting, he just sort of makes up facts about stuff and puts a footnote at the end of the book, like, yeah, I made up all this stuff, so some of it, oh, some of it's fictionalized, but I don't really say what. Yeah. (laughs) So he does that about 
Newton as well. <clears throat> so the ah, sorry, as I get more comfortable, listeners. <laughs> uh, Descartes' Error, Emotion, Reason in the Human Brain is the book that Antonio Damascus wrote. And in it, there's a patient who had a massive brain tumor and had to have it removed. After the surgery, his ability to make choices has gone acaput. He has a really hard time deciding uh, on different things. It's sort of like there's no priority list for him. And then finally, one day, uh, the doctors show him uh, pictures of horrible things. And he looks at him and he goes, I can look at that and know that I should be upset about it. And I realize I'm not upset. So that's when they've determined that his emotional brain has been damaged and that he no longer has empathy and he can no longer make choices because that emotional part of our brain is gone, which is sort of the opposite of what Star Trek was always talking about with Spock, which is why I was like, oh, so Star Trek got it all wrong. <laughs> well, I would like to say that Star Trek cannot possibly be wrong ever because Star Trek is the best. But... <laughs> we love Star Trek. Yeah. yeah so, but... <laughs> but this guy was so fascinating. I mean, he was so interesting. On paper, he would be like a Vulcan. Like, right. he could weigh everything without, you know, being bothered by these pesky human emotions, you know? And his life went in a crapper. Like, he was totally a mess. Made such bad decisions, lost his job, got divorced, and didn't Married care. some woman who took all of his money, and it was, and yeah, he was just sort of like, meh. Yeah. <laughs> and... So, and I think that, I think that what's so interesting about that is it's far more important for people to follow their gut and their intuition and their feelings to know that we're going in the right direction. I feel like our brain and our emotions, you, you obviously, according to this example, you do have to have both and you can't just toss one out. So I, I've read quite a few other books about decision-making in our brains, and there's a couple of TED Talks that also discuss it that are really good. And their advice is big decisions you should use with your feeling brain because that the two halves of our brain is our, our thinking brain and our feeling brain. And our feeling brain has been around for much, much longer than our thinking brain. Our thinking brain has only evolved for like... A few thousand years and our feeling brain can interpret information so much quicker and faster and more accurate than our thinking brain can there's been lots of studies that have done that like even drawing cards that people could feel like what the answer was before they knew what the answer was and so for like everyday decisions or like you know which coffee pot should you buy <laughs> you know which which cell phone should you get to, to use your thinking brain but for big important decisions uh use your feeling brain which leads to my absolute favorite quote in the book you're a crazy feeling brain piloted meat robot <laughs> <laughs> well and another part of this which i found really interesting was that um to help explain um addiction 
or being overweight. So the classic assumption A is you, you use your rational mind to dominate your emotions and you'll be fine. So if you're overweight, you know you should eat less and you should exercise more. If you're a smoker, you know that you're probably gonna get lung cancer from it and you should probably quit. But yet, 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 it's we cannot do that. People who are overweight know they're overweight. And there's, you can't say, I know I should go to the gym every, it's not a matter of just busting through your willpower. You have to get to the emotional reasons underneath why you have these addictions and problems and face them and work with your feelings, otherwise you won't get better. Which is exactly how uh, he talks about with advertisement working Mm-hmm. And the big ad advertisement change and how things were sold starting at the beginning of the 1900s. Uh, I believe he said it was the nephew of Sigmund Freud who came in. It was like, if you really want to sell this product, you have to make people feel they need it, that this will do something for them. And then, mm-hmm. boom, successful advertising campaigns have been changing our society ever since. And I wrote down something um, that I thought was profound that goes right along that, which is the thinking brain justifies what the feeling brain has already decided. Oh, I wrote that down too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa. Right. So uh, it, it, it comes in and the feeling brain writes these narratives and said, oh, you, you made this choice and, and here's... Here's what we're, we're going to do. We're, we're going to write a narrative that fits this so that everything is equalized and cohesive and that the world isn't just a bunch of chaos because as people, people love stories. We tell ourselves stories all the time. In fact, today I got into an argument with a friend of mine at lunch and I was like, the narrative that your brain is telling you does not coexist with the narrative that my brain is telling me. I'm like, the conversation that we had non-verbally went inside our heads completely differently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And one of the examples he used for that, that I thought was awesome was, you know, you got a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they do something terrible to you and you either believe, okay, either all, all men are shit or I'm shit. And then that belief, if you don't resolve that feeling and that belief that's going to color your relationships in the future. Right. Until you can change how you perceive that interaction to happen. Change which, your story. Right. Right. Which, yeah, you have to rewrite the narrative for it. Which leads into the next section of the book was Newton's Laws of Emotion. So, in physics, Sir Isaac Newton wrote the three laws of motion and Mark Manson said, well, what if he didn't write laws based on physics? What if he wrote laws based on emotion? So he, which I thought was kind of a cute way of talking about the the emotions and and the narratives that we write and how these things work. So I I also love science. So (laughs) could be why I was like, oh, that's really cute. I like what you did there, even though you write these really weird ass things about him because <laughs> he does he makes up a bunch of crap and he, and then in his footnotes he's like yeah well uh, he really was kind of a dick so 
That's not really that far off. <laughs> but <clears throat> law one, for every action, there's an equal and opposite emotional reaction. He goes on to these stories like, hey there, reader, I'm going to punch you in the face. And then you're going to have then a moral gap. And so your brain needs to fill that moral gap. So your moral gap could be punching him back in the face or something else happening to him or him paying you for punching you in the face. And as long as the moral gap is equalized, your brain is happy. And sometimes we have to tell ourselves stories to fill in for that equalization. And that is leading to law two, which is our self-worth equals the sum of our emotions over time. Which at first I was like, okay, I don't understand what you're saying. So he said that, say Mark hits us in the face, but he's impervious to anything happening to, to him. Like he's got superpowers, he can't be hurt. So it, after a long period of time, being hit in the face becomes normal. We see that as a normal thing because it's happened so long ago and that moral gap has never been equalized. So that just must be normal. So then our brain comes and our feeling brain comes in and is like, oh, hey, you know, this is normal because you're a dick and you really deserved it. I <laughs> thought that was very profound. I actually wrote that down, that if you're unable to equal uh, to equalize for long enough, your brain says that I deserved it, which is why people stay in abusive relationships and, you know, uh, any number of things, we're so hard on ourselves Right. Any negative experience that can't be equalized and normal normalizes after a long enough period of time. And then <clears throat> law number three, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that your identity will save your identity until a new experience acts against us. So we, we have these narratives that we tell ourselves and those narratives that we write and we get really emotionally attached to these narratives and if we perceive they're being attacked we feel pain we lash out we're like ah i am the best boat captain ever and how dare you say that about me (laughs) and then you know when you realize man i was such a crappy boat captain i killed all those people and then you you go through grief and loss about that part of yourself having died and then to heal that, we we have to rewrite the narrative, like write a new narrative about our future self, like, well, in the future, I'll be the best, you know, like train engineer or something like that. Or we go back and we rewrite the past where we look and we're like, man, I was a pretty crappy ass boat captain. Yeah. And it's much easier to live unconsciously and be swept away in an, in our um, narratives than it is to really consciously look at yourself. Look at ourselves, look at our values, mm-hmm. look at why are we this way. <clears throat> so as like a, a side conversation, a friend of mine called me. I was chatting away with her and she's like, 
you know, you do so much, and I'm so impressed by everything that you do. You're a single mom, and you have kids, and you still have time to make a podcast and read book clubs, work out, take care of myself, meal plan, all these things. And she's like, I just feel it really inspirational. And I was like, thank you very much for, for saying that. I feel like I have an insatiable need to be busy all the time, and it's more of a character flaw. <laughs> like, what's wrong with me that I need to, like, fill up my time so much? She's like, no, 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 it's it's not a character flaw. I, I wish I had that. And I was like, uh, You know, it is, it is inspirational. <laughs> you are inspirational to me also, but I get it. Because a lot of people say, um, things to me like, oh my gosh, you're so nice and you really understand people and you're great to talk to and this and that and this and that. And I'm thinking, if only you knew what a mess I, what an endless and existential crisis I live in every day, you would not be saying that about me. <laughs> so yeah, we all live in our own little realities and it does not look the same to other people. <laughs> I feel I feel good that I inspire people and that that yeah. makes me happy. I I also think that I might overschedule myself a bit, but I have like I have no self-control. It's like oh, I can do all the things. I can get it all done. But you have that awareness, which a lot of people don't have. You're aware about those things about yourself, and so all we can do is be aware of it until we can change it. <laughs> <laughs> And then I'll become a big sloth, and I'll be like, I shall do no things. That Ugh. will never happen to you. <laughs> Probably not. And then uh, the last uh, bit that he talks about in Chapter 3 is emotional gravity, which I thought was very important and uh, very true. So we are attracted to those in our orbit who value the same things we do, and instinctively repel those whose values are contrary to ours. So if you're not conscious about it, if you're not like, oh, hey, Monica, you know what? Uh, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? And she says something that doesn't fit your narrative of X, Y, and Z. You're like, oh, well, you know, we really weren't that good of friends. <laughs> yeah, that does that does happen, especially in our political climate climate in the world today i mean it's everything is very polarized groups are very polarized oh with social media and the internet it's so much easier to find your small little group of people who feel and think like you do so then you just sort of magnify those thoughts when you're only surrounded by people in your circle who think and feel like you do so like maybe oh, you know, I, I'm Catholic and now I'm going to hang out with some other Catholics and they're really conservative. And then I I reinforce, oh yeah, I'm reinforce those very conservative ideas. And the next thing you know, you're like three steps away from becoming a priest because you've just sort of swallowed down that spiral. Not to say that being a priest is a bad thing. That's just an example. <laughs> right. It's like without that conscious thought, it brings me back to Brene Brown again, where she says that, you know, you have to zoom out right. to look at right. people. Like just because somebody doesn't agree with your values and your beliefs doesn't mean immediately that they're an awful person. But we do tend to circle around 
people who are like-minded. We reinforce our, our own yeah. thoughts. <clears throat> so the next chapter, chapter four, is how to make all your dreams come true, which I found partially inspiring and partially disturbing. Like, oh, I could start my own religion. He just, like, gave me all the steps that I need for this. And what's <laughs> weird is it totally <laughs> made sense. And I found it, like, really frightening. <laughs> I was like, yikes. Oh, uh, yeah, that's why I was like, I'm like, I... I have the recipe right here to start my own religion. Should this be in a book? Should he be telling people this? I'm like, like, hmm. I think some people could really use this in not such a positive way. Yeah, and I think many people have used that formula in not such a positive way. Right, right, right. Uh, did you want to go over? Yeah, well, there, the five steps that he had were you have to first have a belief system, and then you have to find followers, and then you have to um, establish your rituals, which it was really funny because he talks about wearing the robes and how robes are always in rituals, and I thought that was hilarious. Um, you have to have a scapegoat and then find a way to make money. And it was just like fill in the blank. And the find followers part was the most disturbing for me because it is like you're preying on people's weaknesses. Right, right. And I, I was, yeah, I was really, I could really see how that could work and how it does work. Because he, he says that we are most impressionable when things are at their worst, which is why a lot of religions will send out missionaries to the poorest and most destitute part of the world to sort of grow their numbers, grow their religions. And, and that's an easy place to grasp because people who are at their worst are seeking answers, they're seeking help, they're wanting spiritual guidance. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, it's, they're easier people to help. So they're easier to manipulate as well. So, I mean, like, depending on the intentions that you have there, if you're starting on religion, that's that's a sure way to start out. Yeah. And then, uh, I really... uh, I really loved uh, step three when he talks about preemptively invalidating all criticism or outside questioning, because... Uh, I see this a lot on Facebook and Twitter and other social media. People are really into dichotomies. It's either this or it's that. It's like either you're going to let us have our guns or you're a bunch of wimps or, you know, uh, just sort of that sort of thing. So they're like, all right, first of all, I'm the boss or you're the enemy. (laughs) Yeah, and that's so dangerous. There's... um there's something that I like to think about. It's called and consciousness, which means that totally opposite things can be at the same time true. We are capable of such complex thinking. It doesn't have to be this us versus them. And everything is situationally based. And something may be true for you one week and then not true again and then true again. It's just you... You can't, and the gun example is 
perfect, perfect, perfect. I mean, there's so many nuances and so many shades in that that we will not discuss right now. But that is a great example of an us versus them mentality. Yeah, I, I see it a lot all the time. And so it that just sort of popped in my head right away. Of which we did talk about that a little bit when we were uh, Brene Brown's Finding the Wilderness. Oh, yeah, that's right. So we, we, we have discussed that before. <clears throat> And then he talks a lot about whack-a-mole game, and that just made me laugh, too. <laughs> but it's true, though, about the whole robe thing. It's like all important things in your life happen with people wearing robes. Graduations, marriages, baptisms, you know. It makes like, you feel a little ridiculous because these are such important ceremonies and when you break it down like that, it's like, wow, really? <laughs> well, see, I, I, I went all like, well, maybe that's why they always wear robes in Harry Potter at Hogwarts. I was like, oh, maybe there should be more robes in society. Maybe I should be wearing my robes when I go grocery shopping. I'm hey, like, I'm all this for the robe, my... especially the hooded robe. It yeah. makes me feel really witchy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, look, let's make robes popular again. <laughs> our new, that's our new life purpose. <laughs> So then the the last step he said that's you know when corruption begins when you're making money that's when humans come in and we're you know inherently terrible. Yeah. <laughs> we really are. That that's pretty much like the summary of most of the book is that we're inherently bad and we have to try to be our best selves. And I think it's more of the the journey to becoming your best self is the meaning. It is the whole point of things. And um, the next thing I have written down after that section, I might have skipped something, but it was the next part that I found very interesting, was the progression from um, child to adolescent to adult. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... I think that's in um, the second half. Yeah, mm. so... Uh, the book is broken down into two parts. Part one, um, it's all about hope and, you know, starting your religion. And then chapter five, that's when he talks about Nishi and God is dead and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Nishi was like all for empowering the individual, radical personal responsibility, you know, personal aptitude. And that's when the feminists were like, oh, this guy is so great. And he's actually misogynistic and uh really weak and depended on women taking care of him which he was just a big contradiction which i thought was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> and didn't he i did write down i think he's the one who has said the amor fati a love of fate right so yes. it's about accepting your fate and your place in society and the world and blah 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 right uh <laughs> Uh, unconditional acceptance of all life experiences, the highs and the lows, like uh, unconditionally accepting that today was great, yesterday really sucked, and that, you know, all of this you have to accept because it's really, it's all meaningless and it and doesn't I really do, matter. I do believe that in order to move forward, you do have to accept where you are. I think people do live in denial a lot about you know, where they're really at. So that I do kind of, you do kind of have to accept what is. Right, and so in part two, 
I, so part one, I was kind of like, yeah, it was, it was all right. But part two, I really liked a lot more. Part two, I was like, yeah, if, if you, if you're like, oh, I don't want to read the whole book, skip part one, <laughs> start at part two. So part two is, um, starts with the formula of humanity. And that's when he's talking about, um, Kant and the progression of, uh, Yes, of becoming child, adolescent, and adult, and the way that our brains work. And it was really fascinating because it doesn't have anything to do with age. So we have lots of grown-up children walking around, right? Right. So it's how we learn. So when you're a child, you, you go right to what feels good. And he used the example of he gets into the freezer and he's like rubbing ice cream and eating ice cream and it's the best thing that's ever happened to him and he goes from you know what I want is what I get but when you're an adolescent you um it's kind of like first you go to principles and then you go to your pleasure so you may want to do something you may want to sneak out of the house and hang out with your friends but you know you're gonna have negative consequences you're gonna get in trouble with your parents so you don't do that. So so you're learning and you're evolving. And then when you get to an adult, you know, you may really, really want that watch. But you don't steal it, not because you're going to get in trouble, but because stealing's wrong. Right. Like you adhere to your principles. Right. So I think we can all think of many people in our life who are full-grown adolescents or children. And lots of very young people who are act like adults <laughs> right right and and a lot of that has to do with your you know what you were taught and your childhood trauma and what you learned and and all of that kind of Mom, stuff can I have some ice cream omg kid all right sorry for the interruption everyone yes go away i told you we're recording okay, go mommy. love you <laughs> child example i want with ice cream, ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> i will ask for it now do not care about consequences. <laughs> I mean, that was like right on the money. <laughs> was he listening? Probably not. But that was that that was fate. <laughs> that was perfect timing. <laughs> right. So that yeah, the adolescent is like say they're in the relationship. I'm going to do something for you because I want something. And I, I saw a meme on Facebook where a kid comes over and is like, I love you, mommy. And the mom's like slashing the heart in half like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, I just read that. <laughs> yep, we get stuck in our face because of trauma, <laughs> neglect, any number of things. We can be stuck in that phase. Hmm. And then, it, then we go into pain is the universal constant. And this was probably my favorite chapter of the whole book. So uh, he starts off talking about this blue dot test where they show people blue dots and occasionally they'll show them like violet or a different shade of blue. And they're supposed to count the number of dots. And then they slowly change the number of dots, but people want that constant number of dots so they start counting other dots that aren't blue as blue dots so he talks about how your 
pain level or your happiness level from zero to 10, 10 being the best, everybody is usually about a seven. And I've read lots of studies that talk about this where a person will be at their peak, they're at the top of the happiest, they're number 10, life is great, this is what I've been working years for to strive, and I'm so happy, and it lasts for about two weeks. And then they go back down to a seven. So like a seven is pretty much where people are all the time. And it's, it's completely relative. Like, you know, like our sevens are obviously much better than a seven of somebody in, you know, like the slums of India, but we're both still at sevens. (laughs) Yeah, that is really interesting. And I think it says a lot about, um, it's not the things that make us happy, but it is our progression. It's our progression that we, we can't stall out or be stagnant or we get that hopelessness feeling. Right. And so much of it's all inside our own heads. It's like, it's, we're doing this to ourselves. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, I have read lots of things about the, the Buddhist monk who set himself on fire. I, really don't know how to say his name so I'm going to say something and it could be completely wrong and I really apologize to the man. The Quan Duck said it. He was protesting about the uh, man who was in charge of South Vietnam at the time whose name I believe was Diem and he had told a bunch of journalists something really important was going to happen and two guys show up uh, one guy had a camera, the other guy didn't. The guy with the camera won a Pulitzer pr- Prize for the picture that he took where he gets out of the car, another monk pours gasoline all over him, he closes his eyes, lights a match, and sets himself on fire, and doesn't move a muscle. And that sparked the Vietnam War for the U.S. And I've read other books about meditation. In fact, it was even the last book that we that how to change your mind mm-hmm. they talk about this guy in the in the book and the power of deep meditation and how he didn't move a muscle it didn't flinch at all and how it was such a powerful image and it changed the world it went viral before viral was a thing yeah that was really i hit me on an emotional level and it's that feeling that shock level that speaks to us as a species way more than words could have they tried words, right? Obviously way more than words could have ever done. Um, and, and he does say that meditation is a never ending observing and confronting of your flow of pain, which is why so many people are terrible at it because it's (laughs) really, no, who wants to do that? You know, nobody, but Kind of, we have to. (laughs) What exactly is going on with my body? What am I feeling? Where is my breath? And being introspective, like, no, I I don't really want to know about me. I'd much rather, you know, binge watch Netflix and distract myself (laughs) and not think of this. And I don't do that ever. (laughs) Let's watch some fantasy TV and float away to another world. Exactly. He talks about anti-fragility and that's sort of the replacement for hope I think in the book like his overall theme is sort of like hope is dead give up hope don't talk about hope just try to become 
anti-fragile, which I was like, oh, oh, my brain is melting. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I took too much out of that um, as far. I I like the fantasy of hope. (laughs) I like the idea that, you know, our feelings and progressing and move like we can move forward and I realize life is all pain but life is also what you make of it it's just easier some days than others to make it into something hopeful and good all we can do is try right that's right uh try to be better versions of ourselves. Yeah. and I think that was pretty close to the message that he was sending in the book too yeah pain grants meaning he did say i wrote that down um and that our choice to sacrifice something for something greater than ourselves i think he mentioned that several times too that ability to make a sacrifice for something for the greater good for something better than ourselves is is also a way to feel more hopeful and give life meaning and yeah i liked it i liked the book I didn't love it, love it, love it. I I like the book a lot, too. So then there's just a few things for the rest of the book that I I thought would be important to talk about is that he talks about how we have a fake freedom where we have too many choices and that only real freedom is self-limitation and what we choose to give up. That's the real freedom, like being able to choose not to binge Netflix is real freedom as opposed to having the hall of Netflix to choose from. That's not really freedom. Real freedom would be not watching Netflix. And then um, the final religion is artificial intelligence. And he had some really good points about technology, which I thought were very fascinating and I thought, oh, that is totally the way I think our culture should go. So he was like, you know, he does say that he is hopeful about some things. And that one of them is that he would dare to hope that search engines and social media algorithms would be optimized for truth and social relevance rather than simply showing people what they want to see. So it, wow. you could build in algorithms that would say, hey, there's an independent third-party algorithm app, and what you're seeing here isn't really true in real time. And so that you could allow users to quickly sift through propaganda and garbage and get closer to evidence-based truth and research and, you know, actual tested empirical data and, you know, real things and not fake news like you know, we should be developing apps for that. We should be having those sorts of services with our social media. We should have those sorts of services with our Google searches. Yeah, that is so true. That is so, so true. Because we're so influenceable and excitable. And especially if we're only staying in our social circle Which or our overs with people who think like us. Especially so, on social media. Yeah, so then... 
you're circling in your orbit, seeing all this mm-hmm. information that may or may not be true, may be evidence-based, may not be evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that would be brilliant. I'm like, we should totally do that. That should be a thing we need to ask for that. We need to want that. People need to develop that and make that part of the surfaces because I think we all feel that we're not terrible people and we all feel like we're doing the best that we can and having something out there that would help us be the best versions of ourselves like that, I think would benefit everyone. Yeah, because, you know, we have more information at our fingertips than ever before. And I feel like we're getting stupider and stupider and stupider. <laughs> I mean, if you look around, I mean, it's just crazy. So, yeah, definitely that would be helpful. Right. It, and he he does also talk about how humans are we're bad algorithms and that artificial intelligence will be smarter than we are and one day it'll sort of take over the world and he went all like skynet on it like maybe he'll they'll take out the humans because we're pointless because we suck and i was like we do suck (laughs) give us another chance (laughs) so i think that is the wrap-up of of the book Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. So the book really isn't about hope because he pretty much says hope is dead at the beginning of the book. So It's just more about the human condition and finding meaning in your life. And I think it's a redefinition of hope. It's not, a, not necessarily that it's just not the hope we thought it was. Right, right. And that we're the ones who are making ourselves unhappy. Right. And that we need to look inside ourselves and try to be better versions of ourselves so that we would be happier. Yeah. So. Goals. Woohoo! Oh, that's a wrap up, folks. So thank you so much for listening. Yeah. And we will see you again next month. Bye.